many other things. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are laboring, burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I ask you to, to just join with me in prayer right now as we come before God and seek to enter into the rest that we just sang about that Jesus promises. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into a world where we're cut off from you and experiencing the dying reality of that in so many ways every day and speaking words of life to us. Thank you for recognizing that we are often laboring, heavily burdened by our own religious attempts to please you, by the sufferings of living in a sin-cursed world, that life often feels like much of a slog and a struggle that, frankly, we are often disillusioned with and discouraged by. Thank you for not only recognizing that and acknowledging that and validating that experience because you experienced that kind of life in this broken world yourself, but for offering us hope. The hope of genuine rest. Not just a break, but actual soul-satisfying rest. I want to pray for everyone who is here in this room this morning. Pray for everyone that is watching our stream, whether it's live or whether they've come back to it later and are re-watching it as a recording. And we pray that you would allow us, lead us, to experience that kind of rest, Jesus, that you promised. That the love that you have for us would renew our hearts. That the life you died and rose from the dead to give us would shape our experience. Father, I pray for those in particular this morning who can resonate strongly with words like burdened or laboring or exhaustion or discouragement. Father God, whatever situations, whatever sets of circumstances have led each one of us individually to feel that right now, we recognize that we live in a world where burden, labor, and weariness is the norm. And so I pray, Father God, that we would seek answers, not just in a change of circumstances, but that you would show us the answers in the one who says, come to me, for my burden is light, because I will take your burdens for you. And so I pray, Father God, that every person today would experience a deep renewal of soul and spirit as we bring our lives more into line with who you are, expose the reality of our lives to you, focus our minds on you, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us and give us life. And lastly, Father, I pray that from that, that experience of renewal and refreshment, you would give us eyes to see other people around us, to have the renewed energy, the, the love in our hearts from you to actually see and care about others around us who may be new, who may be lost, who may be disconnected, who may themselves be burdened. God, would you give us the heart and the energy not to be so fatigued we can barely get through our own day, but to be so overjoyed in you that there's plenty left over to love people the way that you love them. And by so doing, God, would you usher many more people into the experience of eternal life because they've repented of their sins and embraced your son through the loving, gracious, others-oriented ministry of the members of this church. So God, we pray for a great renewal today that would be for our good, that would be for the good of the world around us, and would be for your glory. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Uh, how, how do you 
deal with, get out of, whatever the right word is. Uh, times of extreme sort of fatigue, exhaustion, discouragement. Anybody ever been there? Uh, who hasn't, right? How do you deal with it? How do you get out of it? How do you find the motivation to continue? If you're anything like me and many other people I talk to, when you're in one of those seasons, um, you know, a couple weeks in the Caribbean sounds pretty awesome, right? <laughs> Let me just get, okay, so Travis doesn't want to go to the Caribbean. That's, that's okay. Some of us would rather go elsewhere, maybe a day in the lake, bass fishing, something like that. Now we're getting closer, right? Okay, yes, we know each other, we love each other. Like, you know, getting away from it all sometimes just sure sounds like medicine for the soul, doesn't it? And it can be, it can be, that can be a really good thing. But have you ever noticed that getting away from it all doesn't really cure the problem? Sometimes it, it recharges you, which is a good thing to keep going, but it doesn't really cure the problem. In, in those kinds of times, we, we often find that we need something that's going to renew the spirit, so to speak. That's kind of Bible language. That's going to re-energize us at a deep soul and heart level so that we can find a new energy to keep going. Something different than just a little bit of a break can give us. Um, here's kind of a small example of that. Uh, last Sunday, I referred briefly to the fact that I've gone backpacking in the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming uh, two or three times with a group of guys over the years. I've done this, uh, several of them from this church, a few of you guys are here in this room, we've done that together. Um, that might have led you to think that I really love backpacking. I don't. Um, I don't love it. Uh, when you go there, it's like you know a couple of days of, of hours and hours of driving in the car, not my most fun thing to do in the world. Um, you are putting on, you know, a big heavy pack, 40 to 45 pound pack. There's all this extra gear and like I have some gear that I need to do that, but I don't have it all because I don't do it all the time. So I got to borrow everybody else's stuff and try to not like rip their sleeping bag or something like that. You know, I mean, there's just, and, and then you've got a long, painful, exhausting hike with a heavy pack. Not my most fun thing to do in the world. Like those things by themselves don't make me just go, you, I want to get out of bed on a Saturday morning. Yes. Right. So. You might ask, why do you do it? <laughs> why in the world would you do it if you don't love it? This is the beginning of my answer. Because I do love some things about it. Uh, that's Fawn Lake, which none of you would have ever heard of because I hadn't either until we went there. One of a million lakes up there in the Wind River Mountains. This is about over 10,000 feet. Those, uh, that ridge up there is probably over 11,000. That's about how high Mount Hood is. You are way, way up there. We caught a lot of fish in this lake, by the way. <laughs> I love being outdoors, and I love the mountains. And I love the Oregon Cascades, don't get me wrong. Spent lots of time in our beautiful mountains right here locally. But it's just different up there because you're so much higher. You get to experience different things. Caught a lot of fish out of that little creek, too, which is buried under ice and snow most of the year. But you go up there in the summer and caught lots and lots of really big fish out of a tiny little creek. You just don't get experiences like that. And I love fishing. I love fly fishing. We were actually camped right at the bottom of this hill, just off to the right of that picture. We spent a week up here. This was from a couple of years ago, fishing in lakes like this and hiking. And of course, I love just being with, with the guys. You're with friends. You're spending time that you don't normally get to spend over an extended several-day trip. There's a lot about these trips that I love. Do I love backpacking? Not really. <laughs> I do it, happily, but it's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. There's some other things that give me the motivation to go out and do something I wouldn't normally do because, in the end, it's worth it. It's worth it. 
And we've all experienced those times, right? What do I do? How do I get through a situation that I don't want to be in or do things that I would rather not do? Getting a break is nice, but at some point you've got to put the pack back on and keep going up the trail. What keeps you going? It's not just true of backpacking. It's not just true of life. It's true of following Jesus on this journey that the Bible calls discipleship or discipling. Being a follower of Jesus and helping others follow Jesus too. That's what discipling means. With all the craziness of this past season, we just hear from so many people who are finding themselves discouraged or disillusioned or disconnected or some combination of all of the above. It's been a hard season, obviously. What do you do? How do you handle that? (laughs) A break every now and then is nice, but you come back and the world is still the same. How do you keep going? How does one continue to press into following Jesus if I already feel discouraged, disillusioned, disconnected, or all three? Thankfully, the Bible gives us several real motivations. And that's the subject of what we're going to talk about this morning as we open the Bible here in just a minute. If you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn it to the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. See, at this stage in the life of our church, we're, we're focusing with a fresh energy on this journey of following Jesus. It's simply the Christian life, being disciples who make disciples, to use Jesus' language, being people who follow Jesus, that are helping others also follow Jesus. We do this together on this journey. So for the next um, several Sundays, we've been looking at the Bible actually for a couple Sundays now to kind of see what that, what that journey is. And then last week, we kind of broke it down into its stages so we can understand the journey of following Jesus. And starting in a couple weeks, we're going to start looking at how to walk this journey and how you do it. But today, what we want to do is recognize before we get into the nitty gritty that walking this journey that we've been describing for these last couple weeks can and will inevitably at some point become hard. We get weary. It's a long haul. It's a heavy pack at times. Where do you find the motivation to keep going? That's what we're going to see from Scripture this morning. You see, my church, my biggest heart in all of this is that we wouldn't hear this task, this mandate, this mission that Jesus gives us to be disciples who make disciples, that we wouldn't just hear that as another list of religious things to accomplish. Another set of of boxes that have to be checked or you're not a good person, not a good Christian. I don't want us to hear this as a whole list of shoulds that we pile onto the backs of already weary, discouraged, or disillusioned people. Rather, the perspective we're going to see in Colossians chapter 3 this morning has the power to kind of flip the script on that kind of discouragement or disillusionment or weariness. See, one of the best ways to flip that script is to experience not just a break, but to experience being on a journey that that is leading you to be part of something much larger and something much more beautiful than ourselves. When we really capture that journey that we're on and see that it is bigger and more beautiful than just us, it has the power to ignite your heart and give you a soul refreshment like you can't find anywhere else. And you can't find it on a beach in the Caribbean by itself or wherever your happy place is. 
because God made us to be on this journey. And that's what we want to see this morning. God's vision to redeem the world by making disciples is what we were made for. And this passage of Scripture provides us with three significant motivations to keep us in that journey for the long haul. It's going to show us what God has done for us. It's going to show us who he is, and it's going to show us who he's making us into. That's where we're headed this morning. What God has done for us, who he is, and who he's making us into. Three motivations that can energize your soul as you get in touch with the purpose for which God made you. Let's look at this in Colossians chapter 3, where we begin seeing who God has made us in the first four verses there. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are here on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's stop right there. A couple things to notice about this, and then we'll talk about its, its impacts on us. First of all, this passage begins by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, but that actually means since then you have been raised with Christ. Right? We even do that in modern English sometimes. This was written in first century Greek, and that language did the same thing. Like sometimes I'll say, you know, hey, uh, if you have you know, a wife, maybe you shouldn't go flirt with other women, Right? and you may or may not have a wife. But I can also say, well, I have a wife, and if I have a wife, I shouldn't go flirt with other women. See, in the second case, I mean, since I have a wife, and she's sitting there looking at me, very pretty, I shouldn't go do this, right? We can use this word if to mean I'm not sure if it's true or it is true, and in this case, it's the second. In other words, the Bible is addressing this passage to people who have experienced salvation in Jesus, and they've gotten on the road of following him. So if that's you, understand the Bible is speaking to you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to say, since these things are true, here's how it should affect your motivation. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking like, I'm not sure I am a follower of Jesus, I don't know what that means, then hear the Bible addressing this to Christians and saying, this can be your story too. And God is inviting you into it. Since, in other words, You have been raised up with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. As a Christian, the Bible says you have been raised with Christ. This is what God has done for us. He's given us a qualitatively new kind of life than we have apart from him or than we could get anywhere else. The old sinful you has been killed. That's kind of what it says in verse 3. You have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ and God. There's an old you, the Bible says, that lived for yourself and was apart from God, and Jesus killed that, thank God. And he gave you a whole new you in its place, a new life. This is something he has done for us. We've merely received his gracious gift. And that new you, that new life, is anchored where Christ is in heaven. That's a place where joy And pleasure exists forevermore in God's presence, as the Bible puts it in Psalm 16. That's who you are. That's the joyful heaven life that is now yours. Does that change my perspective on how I live this life? 
It should. It should. That's kind of what verse 4 is really driving at there. When Christ, who is your life, appears, let's talk about his future return, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, like if you're a Christian, your final destination in heaven is guaranteed. It's already established. It's a done deal. That's where you will be with him for all eternity. In other words, if you're depending on Jesus as your Savior, if you're following him, then your life's story ends amazingly well. Guaranteed. No matter how bad it gets on the way, it ends amazingly well, guaranteed. That's the hope you can have if you're trusting Christ for your eternal salvation. That kind of hope makes a big difference. Doesn't it? It makes a big difference. How much are we willing to go through in the short term if we know the long-term payoff is going to be worth it? I'm willing to put a 45-pound pack on my back and trudge around in the thin mountain air for a week without a shower. It's lovely. You all should come visit me right when I come out of the mountains. No, you wouldn't want to do that. Why? Because it's worth it. I know it's going to be worth it. If that's true of a backpacking trip, how much more true is it of eternity? What can I trudge through in this life when I know that the outcome is guaranteed and it's good? That's what he talks about focusing on in verse 2. That's really kind of the, the main sort of takeaway from this, right? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things in the earth. The Bible here is not sort of advocating a like, close your, close your eyes and, and be ignorant of the world around you and go like live in a cave for Jesus somewhere. Like, you know, leave society and disconnect from the real world that people live in. That's not at all what it's saying. No, it's assuming we're in the world and we're already aware of what's going on in the world. The question is, what am I choosing to focus on? Or in the language of the Bible, what am I setting my mind on? What am I deliberately choosing to spend my time and energy dwelling in? You see, one of the reasons that so many of us are feeling disillusioned at this point is because we've gotten sort of jaded, you know, about life. There's not just not as much optimism about the future running around these days as there might have been a number of years ago. You know, we've all been there, right? You see the torrent of bad news on your screens and all around us. And people start to lose hope, whether we're aware of this, sometimes we are, sometimes we're not, but it's happening anyway. You start to lose hope that I'm not sure things are really going to get a whole lot better anytime soon. Maybe never. It can lead us to go inside ourselves, isolating ourselves from people, even from our church family out of fear, and of course, isolation only leads us in the long run to more disillusionment, and so you get this negative spiral going, right? I'm disillusioned, so I'm isolating. I'm isolating, so I'm disillusioned. In Matthew chapter 14, there's a very interesting encounter between Jesus and his disciples. They're out on a boat in the middle of the water, a storm. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. They're trying to make sure this thing doesn't go under and they don't go under with it. And here comes Jesus miraculously walking on the water. Now it's dark. They just see a figure out there and they are freaking out. They were scared enough already, right? 
We're just trying to survive this storm. It's dark, it's cold, it's the middle of the night, we're tired. And then they see this person, this figure walking toward them. Of course, they're known as Jesus. They can't see anything. He calls out to them. They recognize his voice. And he's like, no, you're not seeing anything. You're not going crazy. This is me. I'm doing a miracle because I'm like God in human flesh. That's how this works, right? And so they're all stunned by this. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, let me walk out there with you. He's not sure he can trust his eyes or even his ears yet. And Jesus goes, okay. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) Peter gets out of the boat. And he starts walking on the water. This is a miracle. And he's walking toward Jesus and he's going, oh my word, this is amazing. I can't deny my eyes and my ears are one thing, but my own felt experience, this is amazing. Maybe it really is Jesus. And then he starts thinking about what, what this felt experience that I'm out in the middle of a lake in a storm in the middle of the night and I might go under in this boat and now I'm not even in the boat. What am I doing? And he starts looking around and realizing it's bad enough to be in a little boat in the middle of the storm-tossed sea, but now I'm in the water and I'm out of the boat. And he starts to freak out. And what happens? He goes under. Until Jesus does what? Grabs him, pulls him out. So Peter, you were able to walk on water when you were fixed on me. When you look around the circumstances, you go under. The lesson's pretty clear, isn't it? What are you looking at? What are you looking at? I mean, like focusing your mind on, filling your news feed with, spending your time pondering and wondering about and experiencing. The Bible says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things on the earth. What it's trying to say is, sometimes we need to get our eyes off of the world around us. Again, not disconnecting or being ignorant, but it's like, man, the 24-hour news cycle is just relentless, right? Scary! Fear! People are dying! The supply chain is fundamentally flawed and life will never be the same again! You're not going to be able to get a reasonably priced used car until 2023 at the earliest and maybe later. Isn't life awful? This is what our news feeds are filled with, right? Separate, stay away, people are sick, nurses are quitting, life is terrible, nobody's in charge, it's all falling apart. You immerse yourself in that and you're going to get pretty disillusioned. Okay, maybe some of those things are true. You know what? Maybe all those things are true. But our great motivation to focus on following Jesus and help others do the same is that in so doing, we immerse ourselves in God's story. I don't know what's going to happen with everything I just said. Nobody does. But here's what I do know. Jesus is here. And none of the storms that we're experiencing change the fact that he came to redeem a people for himself, for his own glory. And that's the most important thing in the world. And if you're trusting in him, that story ends well. Amen? And if that's your story, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what you're focusing on, that has the power to start flipping the script on being so jaded and disillusioned. The first thing God shows us in this passage is what he has done for us, but it doesn't stop there. He also shows us who he is. He shows us who he is. And what we see in this passage is at least a couple of things. First of all, he is a hater and punisher of sin. Secondly, He is a lover and forgiver of sinners, of people. 
Verse 6, after telling us, so you got to back up to verse 5 to get the context. It says, put to death, therefore, and now he's talking about our behavior, the way that we choose to live our lives as Christians. Put to death the things that are earthly in you. If you're not focusing on the things of this world but Christ, then you start to live like Christ and not like you used to live when you didn't know Jesus and you were living in the world. It lists some examples. We get two or three lists, representative lists of sinful behaviors in this passage. None of them are exhaustive. None of them cover every possible sin. This is just the Bible trying to help us think practically through what it means to live out the values of this world versus living out the values of our Savior Jesus. So it lists sexual immorality and impurity and passion, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now notice verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Wrath of God is a very specific term in the Bible. From cover to cover, Old Testament and New Testament, it's used consistently. It's always used the same way. We need to think about it just a little bit because the word wrath, when it's used by the Bible toward God, means something maybe a little bit different than we might assume that it means. If you think of a person who's full of wrath, you might think of just uncontrolled anger, right? Maybe somebody who's drunk or somebody who's so livid and angry that they lose control of themselves and hurt somebody or, or you know, kill somebody in a fit of jealous passion or something like that. They fly into a rage and they lose control. And that's not at all what the Bible is describing here. God doesn't ever lose control in his anger. Though it is important to note that it does mean that he is angry. The wrath of God is, as one Bible scholar put it, the divine reaction to human provocation. The divine reaction to human provocation. That is, people are sinning, and that provokes God to say, that is awful, that's terrible, and I hate that, and I'm going to put a stop to it. And the Bible pulls no punches in making it clear to us that the wrath of God is coming in finality one day. Now, that's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. It's a good thing in that if, if you look at evil and, and you see sin taking place and God's reputation being tarnished and people being hurt and you don't care, something's wrong, right? How many people a couple of years ago went nuts when the video of... George Floyd laying on the ground with a knee on his neck for over eight minutes begging to get up because he couldn't breathe and not being allowed to when they saw that video. Many people got angry that a human being, I don't care what he did or what his criminal record, nobody deserves to be treated that way, right? And then how many people, once the sentence was handed down for the officer who killed Floyd, how many people rejoiced that our justice system, imperfect as it is, at, at least that, that sin was being punished, that somebody didn't get away with it. That's the kind of thing the Bible is talking about. Just anger at sin and evil and a determination to see it punished. Although God isn't dependent on our justice system, his justice is perfect. The wrath of God describes God's anger towards sin leading to his action in punishing it. God hates sin. He hates it because it's treason against him. It's a violation of everything that is good and right. He hates sin because it tarnishes his glory and he hates sin because it always harms people, even those who are committing it and in the short term benefiting from it. 
God hates all of that. But God is not just a hater and punisher of sin. He is also a lover and forgiver of sinners. When this passage says on the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, it's talking about a future date, right? God hasn't finally punished all sin right now. Why? Because if he were to do that, he would have to punish all sinners. And who would that be? That would be everybody. When God said, there's sin in the world and I've got to get rid of it, he basically had two choices. One of them was to wipe everybody out. The other was to make a way for some people to escape that kind of condemnation, that sort of eternal condemnation in hell. And thank God he chose option B. He chose option B. Why? Because he loves us. Verse 12, look at this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, people who are holy, that means set apart by him, and beloved. Put on, and then we get another list, positive characteristics, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see, the same God whose wrath is justly roused against sin and who promises he will destroy it also says, but I love people. And so I want to forgive their sins so that they don't have to be destroyed when I destroy sin. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came, motivated by love. God, the Father, sent his Son to die in our place. I love the way the Bible describes this in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 together. It says, God shows how much he loves us in this. While we were still sinners, we weren't asking for forgiveness, we deserved death and punishment, he wasn't waiting for us to wise up and, and, and admit the error of our ways. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's our phrase again. You see, friends, Jesus came, God in human flesh, to live righteously in your place and die a sinner's death in your place. He did this to forgive your sins so that you could be saved from his just wrath. And he did it because he loves you. Our part is to receive that love gift, which you can do by turning away from sin, that's confessing our guilt to him, and turning toward Jesus, asking his forgiveness and starting the path of following him. If that's a decision you've never made in your life, we would love to talk with you after the service about what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus and experience his love and his forgiveness like never before. But you know, the beauty of this good news, the beauty of this gospel, doesn't end once you first become a Christian. Dwelling on these aspects of who God is continues to undermine and flip the script on so much of our disconnectedness that we experience. Remember, he's writing this to people who are already Christians, and he's reminding them of things that are true 
of God. Continuing to dwell on the gospel and let the good news of Jesus love for us and rescue of us at his cost from the wrath of God, letting that continue to shape our experience has a powerful ability to motivate you when you're feeling discouraged and disconnected for the simple reason that we recognize that God has not only forgiven our sins, but he loves us. And he loves us enough to not just save us from his future wrath, but to save us into his family. So, so we're now connected to God as a father, not a wrathful judge. Someone who loves us, not someone who's just going to get us. And what's more, we're connected to other people who are connected to God. In other words, we're connected to one another. I suddenly have a family. I suddenly have a future. And all this is because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. And if I set my mind on that, then it motivates me to embrace my relationship with God more deeply and to engage meaningfully with our church, his family. It doesn't drive us to be disconnected. It drives us toward the community of people who are likewise being redeemed to be together on this journey. If you're feeling disconnected and you're not sure how to get over it, start with Christ. Go deep with your Savior and then from him reach out to and connect with the people that are on the journey with you. God is a hater and punisher of sin, but he is also a lover and forgiver of people. That makes us a family. That gives us motivation to pursue him and his agenda more because we know where we belong. And we know who we are, which really leads us to the third and final point this morning. The motivation to continue the journey comes not only from knowing what Christ has done for us and who God is, but last and not least, it comes from who God has made us. Who God has made us. This new life that we've been given also entails an entirely new nature. You see this, for example, in verses 9 and 10 of our passage this morning, Colossians 3. Do not lie to one another, seeing that, now here's the reason, you have put off the old self, that old you we talked about earlier, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What's the Bible saying here? For those that trust in Christ for salvation, you receive not just forgiveness of sins, like you're the same person and God just forgave you. No, you get more than that. You get to become a whole new person, a whole new nature, a whole new you. And this isn't some marketing ploy. Like, this is real. The old you is about life now. Back to verse 5, and it said, don't focus on what is earthly. And it gave some examples of behaviors that come from people that live for themselves or live according to the value systems of the world or their culture. It's true of all cultures at all times. The new you is, the old you is about the earthly world. The new you is all about becoming more like Christ. Verse 10. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's this old me. There's this new me because of Jesus, and that's the real me. He says, put that on. He's, he's using an image there. It's like clothing. Which, which you are you going to put on today? That one's dead and gone. Those old rags are thrown out. Why would you fish them out of the garbage can and put them on again, right? You got a brand new wardrobe. You got a brand new closet full of clothes. Put those on. They're much better. They're much more comfortable. This new nature is yet one more powerful motivation to be all about Jesus 
following Jesus and helping others do the same. Because the Bible says that's who you are now. That's your core identity. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. Go back one. There we go. Christ is all and is in all. This is a whole new identity that God has given us. It doesn't, isn't it interesting? We're all like after like, who am I? And we, we, we define that based on usually like what groups we belong to. And the groups that we belong to are best seen in contrast to other groups, right? So if I'm in high school, like I'm a football player, I'm an athlete, or I'm a brainiac student, or I'm an arts kid and I do drama and I sing, or maybe if you're super talented, you get to be all of those and everybody else is jealous, right? <laughs> but it's like we, we know who we are because of kind of who we're with. And, you know, if that ended in high school, that would be one thing, but it doesn't, does it? I'm with this political party. I'm from this ethnic group. I'm part of this religious tradition. And so we don't live like those people. I'm part of this group. So we're constantly defining who we are based on the group to which we belong and looking at those that are other and different and saying, I know who I am because I'm not them. It's kind of an inherently dividing way to look at the world. That's what he's talking about here in verse 11. Oh, you're either a Greek or you're a Jew. You're circumcised or uncircumcised. That's Bible language for saying like you're committed to the Jewish religion you know, or you're not. Do you follow our religion or do you follow some other religion? Are you a slave person? Are you a free person? What is your social and economic status and so on? That's what happens, but when you become a follower of Jesus, suddenly that stuff goes away as meaningful categories by which to define who I am. This new nature becomes a core identity. I am made in the image of God a redeemed daughter or son who belongs to Jesus. That's who I now am. And there's no pandemic, there's no supply chain woe, there's no amount of racism, there's no murder, there's no evil in the world that can take that away from me. So when I'm focusing on that, when I'm setting my mind on that, that has the power to flip the script on discouragement, disconnectedness, and disillusionment. I love the word renewal here. Uh, Verse 10. You've put on this new self, which is being renewed. That means ongoing, constant. Constantly coming to see and understand and reflect Jesus better and better. The trajectory is always up. It's always forward as I'm following Jesus. The Bible says the same thing really powerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll end with this. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen says. So we don't lose heart through the long, hard journey of life in the sinful world. That's the context. We don't lose heart. How do you do that? What's the secret? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day after day. The outer self is wasting away. Is that not human experience? (laughs) 
I get older. I get more broken down. The things that I'm hoping on constantly let me down. Things that I built up sometimes completely collapse. Over and over again, life can be a wearisome task. So how do I not lose heart? The Bible says, because the inner self, for somebody who's following Jesus, is always being renewed. It's not going backwards. It's going forward. It's not aging and breaking down. It's growing and building up. It's not headed to calamity. It's headed to glory. That's who you are as a follower of Jesus. Problem is, I don't see myself that way a lot. I focus on what's going on around me. That's why our passage told us, don't set your mind on things of the earth. That stuff's obvious. Set your mind on things of heaven because that's the reality. And when you do, the Bible's promise is that is a constant renewal, a constant re-energizing, a constant moving forward in hope to what is better, truer, and more beautiful than what I'm experiencing right now, the person of Christ himself. Meaning what? Meaning, if you find yourself tired, discouraged, just done, for whatever reasons, maybe you could do with a week off, it might be a good thing, but that's not really going to cure what ails you. What you really need is to connect deeply with the Savior who loves you and redeemed you and gave you a whole new life. To dwell with him, to learn what that means, to walk with other Christians as we help each other stay focused there because that is a sure destination. That is love. That is a guaranteed outcome that is more true, more beautiful, and more right than anything this world can offer. That's exciting. Sometimes a weary soul doesn't just need a break. Sometimes the weary soul needs a reason. A reason to get out of bed in the morning. A reason to be here. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, his call to be a disciple who makes disciples is like no other reason you could possibly imagine. That's what you were made for connect deeply with your loving Savior and find the energy to walk the road he's called us to walk because he tells us his burden is easy, his yoke is light. Effective discipleship requires a motivation that only our salvation can provide. As you talk in our community life groups, if you're part of one of those this week, many of us are doing this growing one another study. This will be week three. It focuses on the same passage of scripture. So I encourage you, if your group meets tonight or later this week, to do week three in this study. A lot of good questions in there to ask and to talk about. Whether or not you're in one of our community life groups, here's a question to think about. Ponder, talk to with others. I want to ask the worship team to come up as we wrap this up. But let me just leave us with this question. Think about these three motivations, knowing who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and who he's made us, does that gain traction with your heart? You know what I mean by that? Like, for a lot of Christians, we can say, I know all those things are true, but my question is, does that, like, move the needle? Does that breathe life into your soul? Does that motivate you to keep going? Or are you struggling to connect with those things beyond the head down to the heart? Why? Why not? Something good to talk about. Because the God, the God has given us powerful promises and motivations here. He wants us to experience them. We want to be the kind of community that helps one another experience them. Let me pray the blessing of God over us. God, I pray that you would take the truths that you have laid out for us here in the Bible and make them not only believable and true in our minds, 
That's so important, but that's just the starting place. God, would you make them experienced realities in our hearts? We pray, Father God, for those that are discouraged, jaded, disillusioned, disconnected this morning, to find life in Jesus for the first time today. Or perhaps for those of us who are your followers experiencing the same thing, to find a renewed life because you have given us a greater purpose that we can connect with you deeply on. I pray that you would refresh souls. I pray that we would come to you and find indeed that you will give us rest. The rest of being connected with you because of what you've done for us and being deployed by you to the most purposeful work possible, following you and helping others do the same. God, change us for our good and your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.